Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 83 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. Today, we welcome lead singer, guitar player, Anthony from Bayside. Anthony and I talk about the new album, Vacancy. We discuss emo screamo, when it went downhill, and what word is worse. And most recent, where's the band tour? Anthony could not have been more gracious with his time, and I think you're really, really going to enjoy it. This episode is sponsored by the upcoming You Blew It album, Avendrot, out November 11th on Triple Crown Records. It's produced by Evan Weiss of Intuit Over It. Avendrot doesn't sound like anything You Blew It have done, and that is a good thing. This is a giant leap forward for not only the band, but the independent scene itself. You're going to love it. This is episode 83 of the Washed Up Email podcast with Anthony from Bayside. So, Anthony, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, I think you, the band starting in 2000 was pretty interesting um, because first that was like obviously Y2K shit. Uh, people were, you know, wondering if their their computers were going to work. I actually had just moved to New York City. So that year is like a pretty big, you know, year for me. Um, and then you guys sort of cultivating for a while, if it was seven inches, EPs, before your first release um was that a conscious thing was that like because now you guys would have a Bandcamp account and like it just seems like it it was even then it still felt slow yeah i mean that's just the it was the way of the world at that time the internet was still pretty infant at the time there was definitely no there wasn't really anywhere for bands on the internet um i think I want to say that mp3.com was probably the first thing that we ever had like an account on. Um, yeah. So we were on like mp3.com and that eventually went, became Friendster. Um, and, uh, eventually obviously MySpace, which I think for our generation of bands is MySpace was probably the best thing to happen to uh, like our generation of bands. I mean, to have, to, to have a, like, let's say there was a bigger band than you putting Bayside in their top eight, that was like huge. Well, that was helpful, but really, I mean, it, I, I guess I didn't even realize how amazing it was until recently. You mean like chatting and stuff, or even the music, even the music part? Well, it, it will be yeah, because it was one page, one page, and it was your it was photos of the band and your tour dates and music, uh, a video. It was everything that was just like, hey, here's my band. Here's everything you need to know about my band. Do you like us or not? If you do, you can click here, and then you'll always know everything that's going on with us. So it was like a mailing list, and photos, and uh, and music, and tour dates, and everything all in one spot. And now we're dealing with like it's a constant struggle now with how many different social media platforms there are. And now we're getting ourselves every record cycle. How do we reach our fans? You know, and it used to just be like, yeah, you just well, we'll put it on the MySpace. You know, and now it's like, okay, we need a mailing list and we need a Snapchat and not everybody uses Snapchat. There's some people still use Instagram. We need Instagram and we got to put it up on the Facebook, but Facebook throttles the posts. And now only 5% of our fans see the Facebook posts and we got to put it on the Twitter and 
we still do need and now maybe we need a mailing list again and we need a website and and it's still you still won't reach everybody where it was just like at that time it was like myspace everybody's here and all the information is there everybody uses it and and everything that they need to know about our band is all in one place and now it's like it, it was spread so thin trying to trying to figure out how to even forget about trying to get new fans i mean now we're spread so thin just trying to tell bayside fans what's going on how savvy are you guys we try. I mean, you know, it's like uh, we, we definitely keep up on things. I mean, we're pretty involved in our business and in, like in the music industry in general. We're not one of those bands that sort of just shows up and plays. Like we're pretty involved. We keep our ear to the ground. We're always talking to people in other bands and other managers and labels and seeing what everybody else is doing. So we try to stay up on the new shit. It's impossible. The thing is, like, content is king now. So it's like, you can't just have an Instagram and just post your tour dates on it and just post advertisements on it because that's not interesting and nobody will follow you if that's all your Instagram is. So you have to have interesting content there. But then you have to have interesting content on Facebook and you have to have interesting content on Snapchat. And it's, just, it's so time-consuming, it's impossible. It's impossible to really... So, I mean, we're savvy as far as we know what's going on and we know what we're supposed to be doing, but it's impossible to actually do it all. And do you feel that burden? Like, do you feel, I mean, you guys are there and you can totally tell when a band has the assistant or the label doing their post because it is, it's, it's that, it's that realness of you guys on the road and posting that really funny photo of that thing that happened and it's in the moment, but the amount of time that it took to get to that, what did you get? What did you get from that? Yeah, I know. It's, it, it is a lot of work just trying to recreate what used to be one MySpace post. And it's, and I mean, now we have, we travel with a, a photographer, videographer. We have a guy on staff now who, tra- who tours with us that he just takes photos and makes videos of us while we're on tour or doing whatever and, and, and post them for us, you know, and we still, we'll take photos and we'll do things and post them ourselves too. And um, but like it's like a, it's a full time job. We had to hire somebody to actually. That is his job. I think. I mean, even I guess stepping back because I just the two thousand year was just like you know the internet's almost like you guys were right in the middle of it and had to go. Um, I guess stepping back a little bit before that, before, you know, before Bayside, were you growing up in the New York City area, being exposed to so many things, and you're almost desensitized? Um, how? how how, what what places were you going? What things were you experiencing that led to you sort of leaning toward you know punk music and it, it, independent stuff? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that growing up going to shows in Long Island. I mean, you know, obviously, like most of us, I didn't grow up. I wasn't. I wasn't. I don't have any older siblings, and my parents aren't punk rockers. You know, so I didn't grow up like getting like being injected with punk rock when I was like six years old. So, um, you know, I grew up on Nirvana and, uh, and Weezer and stuff like that. Like a lot of, like a lot of us, a lot of people my age and, uh, like a young teenager, 13, 14, 15 is when, uh, there was the, the Long Island scene was, was, uh, was kicking ass at that point. You know, there was silent majority was happening at that point in my life and Glassjaw was just starting up and mind over matter and, so there was all these sort of there was all these like punk rock and hardcore shows that you could go to, um, and that definitely I mean that's what got me more and more into punk rock you know and I, I was really into the Fat Record stuff and all the Epitaph stuff and um, so I kind of I followed that and I got really into the youth crew scene and um, so I, I mean I followed that and really I mean as far as being a band goes it was definitely like Solid Majority and. Glass John and all the Long Island hardcore bands that made us think like, oh, cool. So like, if we started a band, there like there are places that we could play. We could actually play shows, and people would come. So we, I mean, that was sort of the the beginning of starting a band. It was like looking at those guys. But then being up starting a band specifically in the in two thousand and within like that year and the following year and the year after that was uh i remember sitting on uh uh brand new brand new got a record deal and taking back sunday got a record deal and Glassjaw got a record deal and seeing all that and they were they were starting to tour and i remember thinking like okay well if they're doing it we like that was the like oh wow this is possible like going on tour and getting a record deal is not something that like 
just happens to somebody else. You know, like this is happening to our friends in our, in our, like the same kids we're going to shows with. And then I remember I was in Levittown at Jesse Lacey's house and we were sitting on his couch watching 120 minutes. And, uh, on the same episode, uh, get up kids were on and Edna's goldfish was on 120 minutes. I remember both of us just being like, Whoa, like, we know these guys, you know what I mean? Like they're on fucking TV, you know? And that was a real eye opening, like, wow, we can do it, you know? So I definitely think that was a, you know, those, those guys had to pave some paths for people like us and brand new and TBS, all the bands that started in like 99, 2000. Um, we had to see that they were doing it first. And that gave us sort of like the courage and the like, it, it showed us that it was possible to like actually tour and to have a record deal and maybe be on TV one day. What's cool. I think, you know, you lit like that you encapsulated that LI scene because it was so connected. I mean, you were at Jesse's house, you you know, obviously Artie, you know, mind over matter or the silent majority guys to, you know, if it's the taking back Sunday, it's just, there was this great community. And I think that was like such a big part of it because you were all connected. It wasn't like, there was a lot of, you, you were helping each other out. Uh, and I, um, yeah, it's, it is a lot like the Seattle thing, you know, yeah. and I, I've heard like Long Island compared to that a lot, but it's more, it's more like that than just the fact that it was a whole bunch of bands playing together from the same scene. And there just happened to be a lot of good bands from the same place at the same time. It was, it was like that in the sense where like somebody broke through and, and then it was just like, everybody looked at Long Island. You know, and I don't like if if TBS and Brand New didn't come first and Glassjaw before that, if if those didn't happen, I don't know that anybody would have paid attention to Brand New and TBS. And if nobody paid attention to them, I don't know that anybody would have paid attention to us. Mm-hmm. Another band I love to mention is Inside. They were a really they were a band that I loved from uh, the Long Island scene. Which one? Inside. Loved Inside. Yeah, I loved Inside. They were that it was one of those ones where I was like, "Oh, this is different," <laughs> but it was it connected. Yeah, but e- even like uh, uh, the the movie life was another yeah. one that we were like, "Oh my god, the movie life is like going on tour." The movie life signed a revelation. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> you know, it was just so. But like you know, it sounds silly to think in hindsight with where all of our bands have gone since then. But like at the time, it was like, "Oh my god!" Like I thought revelation was just like some fantasy label that like some other guys in DC maybe could sign to or some Manhattan guys or like in LA or something, you know what I mean? Like not, not us. We're from fucking the suburbs, you yeah. know? And it was like, Oh my God, movie life signs a revelation. That's crazy. And this might be, this is something that we could probably get into later, but I think it makes sense right now is you guys, I mean, when, if you, like we have an interview with Adam from Taking Back Sunday. He references all these old bands, or he references, you know, maybe there's a new band, or you know, your tour right now. You've got a newer band, Sorority Noise. And you've got Menzingers that are a little younger. You guys are sort of the, you know, the the headliner. But you know, the movie life. I'm just, I'm kind of giving the context of a lot of the fans because it got so big. Sort of didn't get that education of the earlier bands. And it was, yeah, almost like I mean, there's certainly, it just felt because, and it, is it because it got too big? And at that point, you're just not going to get that response. Um, I don't ha- think that everybody listens to music the same way. You know, I think that I, <clears throat> I love music. A lot of people love music, but I love music history and I love lineage, you know? So when I liked, when I listened to Nirvana, I wanted to know who the Melvins were and I wanted to know who the meat puppets were and I wanted to know who screaming trees were. I wanted to know who the bands that they would talk about all the time were, you know, but that's not necessarily, that's not really that important to everybody else. Not everybody thinks that way. Not everybody who was a Nirvana fan knows who the Melvins are. So I think it's kind of the same thing with the punk scene or emo or whatever you call it at this point. Because I feel like the you know the you're totally right about the Get Up Kids. First time someone handed me Four Minute Mile, I didn't even know about the EP before, and they handed it to me, and I was like, "What the hell is this? Like this is so eye opening." And I started digging and diving. I wish more people, you know, I wish the Get Up Kids shows that they did 
aren't at a smaller of which they're at a bigger venue like for some reason i just there's some bands i just want to like plop out and just like yell to the heavens like if you liked this band you should yeah i know <laughs> yeah it just does not work that way though it does help not me. like it, help me <laughs> what's what's the saying is something like uh oh man i wish i could remember the saying but it's something like the guy the the the, the uh the, the, the frontiersmen they they die but the settlers they prosper you know what i mean <laughs> that's that's fucking uh, unfortunately is always the case and i you, mean and i your timing you was any great. band who's popular now like whether they're as popular as we are or way bigger than us they'll say man like you guys like really did your own thing and like you don't sound like anyone is like no we sound just like this other band <laughs> you know like i say that i say that all the time like what, people ask me like what i what i listen to and they ask for like you, you know fans sometimes ask for like some uh recommendations i'll be like just listen to the smoking popes and you'll be like and then you won't like us as much anymore because you'll be like oh okay I, they're not nearly as original as i thought they were so but I, I feel like anybody from from us to brand new to Fallout Boy to to like you two could all say that you just be like yeah we're basically just doing what they did we're like we're just putting our own spin on it yeah and it's whatever the age group but the the thing was that time I mean I was at EVR from oh four to oh seven which I think was heyday for a lot of that if it was on TV MTV two was playing these bands uh yeah fuse yeah 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 it was a great time and the thing that was great was we had this great group of people that were into this genre and it yeah you know i think it did trickle down to some of the other bands um but it just seemed like it was it got it got derivative super fast and i think you guys have done warp tour a bunch um it just it seemed like did you feel as like this next opening band on your next tour? You were like, wait a minute. It, or do you feel like it was just you saying oh, well, we the smoking popes? Out shit that we don't back. We won't tour with bands that we don't back, you know, like we, or even I, mean, but I, I think that, it, it, that cycle happens in every genre though, you know, like, like Metallica and like, and Motley Crue and Poison, like, the 80s metal you know what i mean i mean i'll get to my metallica point in a second because we there's a a whole nother sort of like caveat to that but like poison and motley Crue were doing something you know like they invented something like it or not like they invented something you know but that eventually turns into cinderella and that eventually turns into winger and then like before you know it it's just a fucking joke you know what i mean it's like it's it's a copy of a copy of a copy, you know, and it degrades with each copy you make. Um, and I mean, that happens with everything, you know what I mean? Like fucking with grunge, with, you know, again, with metal, they like, you, you keep copying the copy and eventually, and it just keeps getting more and more watered down. So inevitably, inevitably that was going to happen with our scene, you know? And I think that bands like newfound glory, uh, and like did Charlotte and some 41 that got like their real commercial success, like first in the early two thousands. And then later with like my cam and fallout boy, like those bands were all real bands, you know, if you will like them, hot. they were real bands. They were punk bands. They wrote their own songs. They like played the music they grew up listening to. They play like, and they stayed true to their sound as they got big, you know, but what happened is then you had all these other bands that were like, well, we want to be as big as Fall Out Boy. And like Fall Out Boy and Newfound became pop music, but on their own terms. So these other kids were like, well, it's pop music. So like, we'll get like pop guys to write it, except we'll just like, we'll have tattoos and we'll look like a, like a punk band. And like, that's, that's really where it started going down. You know, like, I, I, you know, I, I, when I was younger, I would have named names, but I'm past that. I'm past that point <laughs> in my life. Uh, I've been told was, the same thing. I started seeing on Warp Tour in like the mid to late 2000s is when I started seeing all these bands is like, you're not a fucking punk band. You're a pop band with tattoos, you know? So they just sort of, yeah, like, but those bands that they were trying to emulate were the real deal. And these kids that came later on, they didn't realize that like that shit was born out of something real. 
Well, that's that sort of education part again. It's that they only saw the pop music plus, like, the pop sensibility. How about that? And the sort of tattoos versus it was deeper than that. And it was that, again, you're saying that fan isn't going to go as deep. So they only right, saw. And that's why, right. And those kids just didn't get it. And that's why it was a copy of a copy of a copy. You know, and that's why New Found Glory is still here, and that's why Some Forty One still here, and that's why Fallout Boy still here, because and you know, and those bands were pop stars at one point, but they're still here, and all those kids who wanted to be pop stars, they had their moment, but it didn't, it, you know, it didn't last. Yeah, I mean, those Broken Side, like all that kind of stuff. That thing was like a f- quicker than a flash in a pan. Yeah, but all those original guys, they were pop stars, but like by accident. They were pop stars because they got huge, not because they were trying to be. Yeah, it, I, it's such an interesting time, not only because it was like I was an outside fan of the earlier stuff, but also in it, and I had bands that were like successful because of it, and then trying to come out of it when that bigger sort of group of people left, and you were trying to still hold on. I mean, did you have that feeling when, the, I mean, that wave happened, and then it kind of stopped if it was 08 or 09, and... I mean, did you feel well, and, like well, this? And this is where the Metallica, and this is where yeah. my Metallica thing comes in. And what we've always said, uh, this, this, uh, our Shep Goodman, who produced uh, most of our records, said, was saying this about us to us, like when, like from he produced our self-titled record and the Walking Wounded record, which were like two of our most popular records. And he was saying then, and he was like, Bayside just does not. We we've never jumped on any trains. We've never toured with all the cool bands. We never looked like the cool bands. We never did what the cool bands did. So that when the trend, because we knew that the trend was going to go away, we knew that it was going to die. So we always said, like, as long as we don't fucking like latch our wagon to that, then like when that shit crashes, we won't crash with it. And that was always a really conscious effort, much like Metallica not being Motley Crue, you know. And we always said, like, we, like we want to be the Metallica, in like we want to be the Metallica to what emo is to hair metal, you know, like when this shit becomes like, like, yeah, we'll like, we'll, it'll work, you know, like we'll live, we'll sort of like coexist with this scene and we'll keep a foot in it, but we're always going to keep a foot out of it because this shit's going to become a joke one day, you know, it's going to, and we, so we, that we, that was always like really conscious and we've always had a literally asked ourselves from back then, even to, to right now, we always say, are we going to be embarrassed about this in 10 years? This photo, this album cover, this song, this lyric, we're going to be, are we going to be embarrassed about it in 10 years? And that's, that's, uh, that's always been the way that we've operated the band. I love that. But th- it's interesting is that would that, would, would someone run away from a word as much as emo? Has anyone ever run away from a word as much? Uh, yeah, I guess not, you know, but I mean, like, it's semantics, you know, who cares what they call it? What do you want to call it? Like, you, you want to like, like every time we talk, talk about a genre, like a group of bands, do we want like a paragraph explanation that like define <laughs> the band? Or can we just, can we just pick a word and call it that just for like, to totally. make it easier? Like, I don't, you know what I mean? I don't care. <laughs> well, the, I mean, I, I've been grappling with this for years. So, but I just think, is there another word that's hated? Like people run from it. As far as genre goes, I don't think so, man. I mean, nobody like nobody nobody like doesn't like to be called a like a rapper, you know. Nobody doesn't want to be True. called a rock band. Nobody nobody doesn't want to be called an R and B group, you know. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I can't think of another genre that people like hate being associated with. <laughs> there is one artist which I've told on a previous podcast that will never be interviewed by me because of the name of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know what the only thing that's the only word that may be worse is screamo yes can we talk about screamo for screamo a second invokes screamo invokes the 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 haircuts and the makeup a little bit more you know what than, Maybe, than emo does i think you're right i think i've learned something right now anthony i think i hate the word screamo more than the word emo because screamo to me is frail 400 years uh, you know, all these sort of like that was like someone absolutely screaming on the floor with chaotic music. That's what I thought it was. Right. And I like, I mean, there, I, and maybe at the 
at the beginning of it, maybe there were some cool bands doing it. Like I, I guess like Keepsake was kind of like a screamo band. Um, like I guess there was some cool stuff at some point. Glass Eater, I don't know, like some some stuff like that. That that was kind of cool. Um, but like definitely in this in the in the, the generation we're talking about, the screamo bands were worse than the emo bands. I the crabcore stuff, yeah, you know? the crabcore, and those stuff. kids all—they all, all want to be called just metal, but like they're not. But that's still going on right now. I still feel like there's—I'll—I'll uh, I'll get yelled at or something. I'll crack a joke about a band, and they'll say, "Tom, that's a screamo band." And I'm like, "What are you talking about? It's the—it's the hair. They're—they're they're chugging. Their guitar is swinging around their back with. Uh, it's strap. a lot campier. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot campier." It's like I can almost yeah, I tell you when the breakdown's worse coming. Than emo. To me, at this point, emo is is defines like bands from a certain time. That's what I, that and that's how I hear it being used now, and that's how I use it now. Like it's 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 a certain generation of bands, you know. Because I do these emo night things all the time, and like we don't sound anything. I don't think like Newfound Glory. Or and Newfound Glory doesn't sound anything like Paramore, but like we're all just emo bands, or you know what I mean. And that is totally so, that's totally generational. I, I definitely get that. And in, in the yeah, emo so this, night to this thing point, is like, I feel yeah. like emo just defines a generation more than a sound at this point. Yeah, but the I guess the put, to to put a bow on the screamo, maybe that there should be more education on that. <laughs> maybe I should yeah, focus well, my I, funding. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I so I, I mean to answer your question, I think the, the screamo label people run away from even more than the emo label because all those bands call themselves metal, call themselves metal bands. Yeah, I mean, Rich Egan uh, from Vagrant was on, and uh, he had said, "I don't know where someone can connect the dots from Black Veil Brides to Hot Rod Circuit. I don't know how those two <laughs> bands are somehow connected. He doesn't see it. I don't either." Right. Well, do people call Black Veil Brides an emo band? Yes! Yeah, I mean, the, that new generation of stuff I know very little about. I know that they exist. Um, I, know, I know they're really big. They look like, to me, Cradle of Filth Light. That, that's what they look like to me. Just visually. Okay, I thought they were more like a Motley Crue thing. Oh, maybe, that, maybe they're more Motley Crue. I thought they... Maybe they're maybe they're in the middle of that. <laughs> maybe it's a because new genre. They're pretty, we don't know. Because they're pretty. Because they're pretty. That's the difference between Yes, because Cradle of Filth. The difference is between Mo- the difference between Cradle of Filth and Motley Crue is lifting. <laughs> That's totally true. That's totally true. I love that we're the only people ever to have this conversation. <laughs> That's awesome. I love speaking in sweeping generalizations. Oh, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Well, the other thing you kind of mentioned, you know, the emo nights and my whole thing was I've been doing one for about five years, five plus years, almost six um, uh, next February. The whole idea was it kind of goes back to that history thing of we play everything from the 90s through to through today, even 80s, if you want to talk about some of the discord stuff through today. So it's like you've got this whole breadth of here's this here's this word, but it connects all of these different sort of eras. And I feel a lot of these ones that if you don't say pop punk after it and you just say emo night and a kid goes and you're playing some 41, it, there's, there's that disconnect with me that you need to describe it in a different way because um, it's a discredit to, I think, uh, not just – the bands, the bands of a whole generation. Well, it depends on, I mean, DJing is a different ballgame. To be a DJ for me is to strictly, like when you're in a band, right? Like you have to be an artist. You got to do, you got to do what you do and you have to stand behind it and you have to love it. And, you know, you, you have to have an artistic voice. I think when you're a DJ, your job 100% is to, play what the people in the room want to hear. That is a hundred percent your job. If you're a DJ and you're out there and everybody's bummed about what you're playing, you're a terrible DJ. Whereas if you're a band and you're playing in front of a room to, to people who doesn't like your band, 
there's only so much you could do. But like, if you're a DJ and you have every, literally every, every song ever written at your fingertips and like people don't like what you're playing, then you're not being a good DJ. So when I've DJed those emo nights, they are pop punk nights, you know? And I like a lot of that stuff. Like I'll play New Found Glory. I totally do. And, I love New Found Glory. Uh, like, uh, like, and I like that. So my only one, my only rule is that I won't play anything that I don't like. But if I know that everybody's there to hear that stuff, then I play that stuff. But what's but if I were to do like more of a real emo night that I know that I know they exist, like I did the LA one the other like a week ago, which is that's that's a huge one. I've fucking never seen anything like it in my life. But I did that last week, and that's totally that's a pop punk night, you know. But like I'm sure there are cool ones in Brooklyn and 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 other places that are smaller that like people do want to hear real emo they want to hear pieball they want to hear the jade tree stuff and they want to you know what i mean like they but want to hear can emo, play emo. both you can play both i feel like if those guys are in that position and yes they told me that there's an outdoor stage or whatever i feel like there's a way to if that's the fan that's just there then it's that fan that was in the bubble that's there see but the, again it kind of goes back to what i think is DJ's job is if you have a room full of people like say for instance like there because there you can test the waters on that stuff right so I like when I like I, I DJ a lot so when I I always sort of like test the waters and I see where the where the line is and you can look at you can look at like like emo I guess as some sort of like or at least those emo nights as like sort of a bullseye that stretches outward right and if like you know some 41 and newfound glory and Jimmy world and that stuff everybody's gonna go nuts when you play it right so you could test the boundaries a little bit like you could start off with like saves a day you know you could play like at your funeral and see how that goes you know you could play some of that like kind of just on the outskirts of like pop emo you know and and you could stretch it all the way out until it gets to Raina Maria. You know what I mean? And just see see how the see how the audience reacts. But if you find that people don't know who Saves the Day is at 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 the thing you're DJing, then like then you gotta get back to the hits. But those kids think I one hundred percent agree. I love playing that whole genre. I feel like if you're there, call it pop punk night then. Don't call it emo night. <laughs> what? Well, semantics. It's semantics. <laughs> But the kid coming thinks it's emo. That's the thing that I try and like. The kid going thinks it's just emo. So I'm like, okay. So you, yeah. So you, so you think it's you, you're doing the kid a disservice by not educating them. Is that yeah. What you think? And I totally agree with I, your I thing. I can see that. I just think there's a way to if you're going to call it pop punk night and a, if a kids comes and they're going to play all that, or if you're going to oh, do but pop emo, punk has a new meaning now. You're right. It does. Because pop punk night means you're gonna means neck deep and man overboard. That's a, it's a whole it's a whole right. new thing. So I guess it just if it changes, my whole thing is this education of just if you're there and like if if a kid's there and just knows the hits, I would love if they went away with something, even if it's a B side from a Taking Back Sunday record that they don't have. Just another way to dive deep and. I just think there's even with radio when I did college radio, it's like you play a song everybody knows, and then right after play something you think they might like because at least you've got their attention. Um, and I'm sure you think the same way. You're like, oh, let me test this because it connects. This yeah, way. I mean, and those night. I mean, granted, when I've done them, I'm the special guest DJ, yeah. and I come up like at midnight, it's prime time, and I DJ for an hour, and I can fill an hour with hits. Yeah. But those nights are like five hours long. So yeah, if you're yeah. hosting one of those then you're DJing yourself all night. There's a lot more room to stretch out. So it Definitely. is sort of, it's a different, it's a difference of like a, a role, I guess. Yeah. Moving from that, one thing I thought would be, I'd love to talk about was that solo tour that you did with Conley, uh, with Dan, Andy from Hot Rod. Um, and it's sort of similar to this is that. Yeah. Speaking when I, of emo, speaking yeah. of washed up emo. <laughs> that was, I mean, Matt was fucking hilarious during, I mean, he's, He's always got the great one-liners. But I thought it was interesting yeah. about that tour, and I saw it in, in, at the Bell House in Brooklyn, and then I heard about the Jersey show. What was interesting at the Bell House show was that you know, I, was, I love you know, Alkaline Trio. I listened, you know, I've been listening to you guys forever. Obviously, Get Up Kids, Chris, you know, I love Saves a Day. So each yeah. time yeah. I was like, fuck, this is amazing. But it was interesting to hear the crowd. Like, 
Dan's playing yeah, a song. Yeah, they don't know a song. They don't know a song. So what do they do? They start talking or they go on their mm-hmm. phone. And I went, I go, okay, okay, grandpa, stop getting angry. <laughs> like no one's been to, like a half, 90% of these kids haven't been to a VFW hall. But I thought, was there that education of shut the fuck up? Dan Andriano's playing a song. I don't know. I don't know. I what, mean, were there other venues like that that you felt that? Some. I mean, there are nights that that it works better than other nights. I mean, that time that we did at the Bell House, that was one. We've done that. We've been doing that tour like six or seven years, and uh, the lineup kind of varies slightly. It's always been me, Matt, and Conley. Um, and uh, this is the first time I did it with Dan. Uh, I think I wasn't on one year. Um, we had Dustin from Thrice on a couple of them. So, uh, Evan from Into It Over It was on some of them, which was nice because, like, for one stretch, I was not the kid anymore. Um, <laughs> I swear to God, I've known those guys now for, like, seven or eight years. You're still the kid? The, the kid. I will always be the kid. As far as, as, far as Pryor is concerned, I will always be oh, the kid. Oh, Pryor. Jesus. Um, but um, that – so that – when we did the bell house and I think a show before and a show after that, there's like three shows out of eight years that we've been doing this, that we did that like in the round style where we all got up on stage and traded songs. Um, and that was tougher because the problem is, I think not so much that people don't know a song or they don't know what, whoever's up next. They don't know Dan or they don't know Andy and they talk over his stuff cause they don't know him. It's, I think the problem was more that there was no breaks in the show. So like at some point you got to talk to your, the people you're there with. At some point you got to go get a drink. At some point you got to go to the bathroom. You know what I mean? So a normal show, somebody would play, then there's a break and you talk, you do whatever. And then for another half hour, you focus your attention. Then there's a break. And then for another half hour, you focus your attention. I think that was more the issue than no stop. I don't know who this guy is. Yeah. I'm going to wait until somebody else comes up. Okay. Like, whereas if, if we were doing full sets each, I think everybody would have been able to give their full attention for a half hour at a time to each guy. That makes sense. Now, what happened in Jersey the next day? Because Chris fucking went ape shit on people talking. Is that what happened? Was he pissed? Um, yeah, I mean, basically, Chris was mad that people were talking during Andy's song. Um, and I think he felt a little responsible cause it was Jersey and he isn't saves the day. So I think he felt a little responsible cause so many people were there to see him. And so I felt like he felt like it was his fans that were, that were being disrespectful to not only his friend, but an artist that he, that he really looks up to, you know, an artist that he really likes. And, um, and he just, you know, he just kind of flew off the hand a little bit. <laughs> it all happens to everybody. <laughs> and then it all, you know, it, it sort of ends with him running around with a cape. <laughs> every every tour date I've ever seen him recently has the same sweatshirt and same um, winter hat. So I'm, has I'm, he I, ever been on your show? Have you had? Have you yeah, interviewed him? Yeah, Chris is amazing. Have you brought up the sweatshirts to him? No, because I I realized it after I did. I interviewed him like three years ago, um, so I haven't he, asked uh, him about the sweatshirt. If you have him on again, ask him because he associates every day with a color. Oh. Every day of the week, he associates to a color. So, like, I don't know what the color, what color is for what day, but like hypothetically, on Monday is like a red day. So he always wears red every Monday. I need. Yeah. need so I think if we figure out which color with each week, we could have like a saves the day Chris Conley color wheel. And then everybody wears that color. I think. Yeah, you could. I, he would. I'm sure he would appreciate it. That's a, <laughs> the, the chi is real big for him. Oh, dude i I sent him some records from my real job, and like he flipped out. And I just was like, "Dude, you've given me so much joy. I can give you like a couple Bob Dylan records. Like it's fine." <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a uh, he's a character. <laughs> I met all. I mean, I grew up. The first Where's the Band tour we did was me and uh, Matt Pryor and Chris Conley and Dustin. Kenzer and uh, I, I grew up on those guys. Thrice came along later, you know, but like we were already a band by the time I, I heard Thrice. But uh, I was I was a fan, you know, I was a fan of Thrice, and I listened to Saves the Day and Get Up Kids in High School. 
And that was the, the first time I met them all was on the first day of that tour. I never met any of them before. And it was like, oh my, like I was in a hotel in Chicago and I was like, tomorrow morning I'm getting in a van with these three guys and I don't know any of them and I'm a huge fan of all of them and I'm, we're going to like share a van. Um, and it was like, it's a wonder that we have never like done a documentary based on one of the Where's the Band tours because like, it's a fucking trip. Like, however interesting anybody thinks it is when they go to a show, you should see what it's like when we're not on stage. It's a, it is like, you couldn't find like four or five more different personalities. And, and I think, I mean, I think Matt should go on a, on a, a comedy tour. I mean, when he, him and Reggie did something, I forget if it was the part of the ghetto kid show. I think it was, but he did like a solo thing. And then Reggie, or uh, D- James Deweese came out and did like, it was just like it was like a comedy routine like it's yeah I know I know Matt's ridiculous he's but, hilarious but then like just that in itself is one thing and then Chris is obviously in his vibe and everything's cool and uh, you know that whole world it just seems like you're totally right there needs to be a uh, someone needs to follow you guys next time <laughs> yeah like you really you couldn't imagine how insane it is between all of us like the conversations that happen are absolutely outrageous. <laughs> All right. Now, now, now we'll have to do a Kickstarter funder for that. Done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think too, uh, something, you know, you guys have had this longevity, which a lot of bands, two records, you're done. Something happens or someone that's re- 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 replacing someone doesn't really connect. Um, what do you attribute that some to? And I think you guys even having four records, is it four with victory? Yeah. Or five. Uh, four albums. Yeah. Four albums with victory. We did a live record with them. We did an acoustic EP with them. And you're still alive. Uh, but yeah. Which is four great, records. Which you guys are still yeah, alive yeah. from that, which is, I think that, that is a, I, I think you get, an, I, th- I think you get an award for that. Um, I, you know what though? I defend victory. Tell to me. Day. I, like when people, when, when people have things to say about it, um, you How know, so? other bands that have, that have served time there, I, I obviously lived through everything they've lived through and it, it was, it was nuts. You know, it was crazy. It was, a, it was crazy times, but like looking back, like we wouldn't be, for one thing, Victor was the only band that wanted to sign us. Right. So like, it's not like everybody was like beating. We weren't like a hype band. It's not like everybody was beating down our door trying to sign us. So Tony was the only person who took a chance on us. And Tony made sure that people heard our band, you know, like when I talk to kids who come to the shows, even now, like they first heard about us on a sampler that they got handed or, or like on like this, the taking back Sunday CD came with a bonus disc that had us on it or so, you know, so much of that. And that's all like, thanks to victory. We wouldn't, we would not have a career if it, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for it. And I, and I think, I don't know about, those other bands i don't know if all the other bands had a ton of labels that they could have went to instead and they would have the same results but we all have careers like because of the the work that victor did i think two things it wasn't me dogging on victory i was almost saying because of all those things going on you sort of there's a stigma around the label sometimes and I think a lot of those bands that had that negativity i would always tell them why did you sign the contract did you read it did you have a lawyer go through it? Like, did, there's some things that they're kind of complaining about. I'm like, but you signed it. So were you that, that is a, hard that up is for a the big label? Thing that, that's a big thing that doesn't get talked about in the press when everybody talks about victory is that, like, he's not so much of a thief as people sign bad contracts, us included. You know what I mean? Like, a lot of that money that you think you're supposed to be getting that you didn't get, you're not actually supposed to be getting it. Like, you signed it away. Yeah, and I think you guys, that, I mean sometimes bands think you know, they're going to sign unfair. to it. That may, well, yeah, that may be unfair, and that may have been predatory, and it may have been, you know, preying on young kids with dreams and no other options, you know. But again, I'm now 34, and I have a career thanks to that quote unquote bad contract. But I think you you guys were either you knew you played the system or you did what you needed to do. And you hit it. I mean, taking back Sunday had That's exactly great... what it is. Yeah, 
you guys took the ones, advantage. The of ones it. who made it out are the ones who just put their heads down and and kept kept working. Those are the ones who like made it made it made it through. And I'm sure, and those are the ones that still have career. Yes, and that, my other point was I when I was at EVR, and this kind of relates to you guys probably seeing other bands that were on Victory. There were some bands that would sign, and they would come to the to, to the label, and I'm not going to name them, but they almost just were like, "Well, we're going to be huge now. We're on e- EVR," and I was like, "No, right. you are not. Your shit yeah. just started. <laughs> you are going to be on two crappy tours. You're going to be on a third really crappy tour, and then maybe someone's going to care about you." And I think. It, yeah. it, that same thing with Victory because I mean I bought most of my records from the Victory magazine like their mail order was fucking huge I that was like yeah. they were such a beacon and it was like I mean I Snapcase Earth Crisis Strife that was I loved all that shit and those bands put put the work in I mean I tell young bands now we always take young bands out on tour to open up tours and I tell them all the time like a record deal, a big support tour and whatever it is like that is nothing. It's all it means. Everything you did until now means nothing. Like all this means like this is just an invitation to the party. Now you, now you got to really go to work. Yeah. And I think that's that. I feel like when I ever, I see a thing about it, any label, not just victory. I see that. I go, okay, maybe they didn't sign something. Maybe the, but Hey, it's a business. <laughs> the, the label needs to make money. They're taking a chance on you. It's just, it's that whole thing of, did you read it? <laughs> like, no. Yeah, I mean, but it all just goes back to, like, just just do the work. You know what I mean? Like, don't, you can't blame your manager or your label or your agent for anything. Just make, like, I always use Panic of the Disco as, as like, an example of, like, Panic of the Disco didn't do anything differently than any other band. They signed a record deal to, at the time, was just an independent label. Now, I mean, now, Feel by Rum is basically a major label, but they signed to an independent label, they made a record, and they went on tour, and their friends took them on a tour. You know what I mean? But Panic of the Disco got enormous overnight. You know what I mean? And why did that happen? Because kids like their fucking music. You know? They didn't have, like, the magic manager or the magic label or the magic anything to just, like make it happen. They just wrote songs that kids like, you know, so like just write good songs and play good shows and you hope for the best, you know, cause there are bands on major labels and feel by ramen and bands that are managed by the biggest managers in the world that don't go anywhere. Yeah. The, my whole thing, I get, I get emailed all the time and it's bands sounding like American football and, and I write them back and say, I love that you're oh, trying yeah. to sound like American football. I am head, head dude at the Mike Consilla table. But the problem, I was like, you don't sound like anything else. <laughs> like, you know, right. put, please put a hook in there anywhere. And, you know, it's just, I get it. They, they're, they're kind of finding their way. But that also goes back to that internet era. Like, you guys almost had, you know, years to sort of cultivate before that first record. It's almost these bands form. Three months later, their band camp goes up. They get signed to a label, then they're touring, and they didn't really have time to cultivate. Do you feel that? That's, right, it's the outliers. Do you thing. do you feel like it's too quick? Um, I mean, it works for some bands. Some people just, just you know, there, there, I, there's two Malcolm Gladwell references for this. There's like, you know, there's the ten thousand hours where, like, a lot of us, it took us, you know, we were a band for four years, touring heavily for four years before we got signed. So, you know, maybe by the time the spotlight was on us, we were ready for it. You know, you can look at it that way. And also, there's something about, like, how different kinds of genius. And sometimes, like, you know, I read something about how Hallelujah, when uh, Leonard Cohen wrote it, it wasn't popular. Nobody liked it. And then somebody else covered it, and somebody else covered it, and somebody else covered it. It wasn't until later on that, that, it, that it clicked. You know what I mean? So, so, but then there are people who are just, they just have it, you know? Again, Panic of the Disco. Sometimes people just have it. I guess it's that expectation. It's that expectation. I guess maybe some people that need more time to ferment, and but I don't think that that's a rule. Yeah. No, I, I guess you're, you know, you're right. It's not the rule. It just seems like I want to I have like a little quarantine on a band for a minute. Like you got to like go I mean, at least up the East Coast for a second. <laughs> Well, you know, the biggest support tours we ever did, we, I mean, we, we've never really been a supporting band. We never really did a lot of big support tours. 
we did when our first record came out in 2004. We did a tour with Juliana Theory. Um, we did a tour with Fallout Boy before they were like Fallout Boy, and uh, we did a tour with Meth. And uh, those were like bigger tours, you know, like the the Meth tour. There was like thousand people in some shows, um, but we didn't come off those tours being any bigger. We didn't gain fans on those tours, and I think and I and I looked back on it thinking like hey, I don't just don't think we were ready you know I wish we were as good I wish we wish we were as good as we are now <laughs> like when we were when we when we were when we had like when there was different opportunities but I what I love about those three bands you mentioned is they're all pretty different and you guys yeah, fit yeah. with all of those and I think that's another thing that you guys have done and I'm not just stroking you I just think there's a you can fit in all these other genres and way people describe things and it and and it works and i think that's what the one thing i loved about before it was like these package tours and everything kind of sounded the same it was these different bands and even the tour you're on now bands are different it's not the same yeah i mean and that's always been i mean but that's a blessing and a curse i think it has a lot to do with our longevity that we never fit neatly in with anything but at the same time it was why when in 2004 and five and six and seven, when fallout boy got enormous and my Chem got enormous and Paramore got enormous and all that, we didn't get enormous. It's like, we didn't sound like what was happening, you know? So it was a long road for us to kind of, I mean, the last tour we did, our last headline tour was our biggest headline tour ever. Wow. As it came 15 years into our career. No shit. You know, like, and the, our new record that just came out a couple of weeks ago was our highest chart debut we've ever had 16 years into our career on our seventh album, you know? So like for us, it's been a long, steady, slow climb because we never really, it never clicked. It was never like, Oh, if you like these bands, you'll love all this. You know what I mean? Like if you love these, if you like all this, all this stuff that's popular, then you love Bayside. That was that never worked for us. So, you know, we didn't get huge when everybody else got huge, and it took us a long time. But at the same time, I, you know, that's really what I attribute our longevity to. Yeah, I mean, sp- speaking of that, I did want to get to the new record. You know, Vacancy just came out on Hopeless. It's your second record on Hopeless. Um, are you, you know, definitely, obviously, a lot of the things in the in in the press were about sort of struggles and yourself. Did you? I had. Um, uh, the guy from uh, another newer band kind of talk about mental health and kind of bringing it out there. Did you feel that was something that you wanted to put out there that you were struggling and that this was something that was cathartic and, and helpful? You know, I don't like, I, I, so I guess I kind of have a funny relationship when it comes to mental health because I kind of feel like what I was going through, it was like just life was punching me in the face and I was just, I was having to face it. You know what I mean? Like I, I was I like, to me, real mental health issues come from depression and anxiety that are based on nothing. Like to me, that's, that's mental health issues. I think being sad when your wife leaves you or like being angry that somebody did something to you. To me, that's, that is a, like a normal emotional reaction. And I think to be a good songwriter, you have to open that up and you have to peel the layers away. And I think I wish all the time that I could be one of the, one of those people who somebody breaks up with them and they say, well, you know, fuck them. You know what I mean? They're, they're an asshole. You know what I mean? I'm right. They fucked up, you know, like ignorance is bliss, but I, you know, I'm not one of those people. Something happens to me and I say, well, what did I do to bring this on? And what could I have done differently? What could they have done differently? Why is this happening? Why does this happen to anybody? Why is this, why is this a thing in the world? What is marriage really all about? Like, what is a happy marriage? Is there such a thing? You know what I mean? Like, that to me is what being a songwriter is. It's like really opening up and opening it all up and dissecting it all. But like, I, to me, this record, the record's not to me about mental health. It's more to me about kind of something happened to me and I had to work through it. What would you pass on? You know, someone listens to it. There, you know, they, there's obviously a lot of um, emotions through it. If there's one thing that you would that you learned through it all that you would pass on to someone, if you had, you know, an elevator pitch, um, not about the record itself, but just learning, wh- what would you say to that person? 
I think, I mean, you got it. I think you have to dissect it. You have to open it up and you have to figure out why things are happening. And you, and I think that like what you could do to, to prevent them. And if they're not preventable to come to terms with it really, but I think it's really important to work through things. I don't think like leaving things in the past or filing them away just doesn't, doesn't work. You gotta, you gotta get into it. And then for you, you know, are you still in Nashville, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I think I love where you are. I think it's such a great community of uh, musicians and so many people have moved down there, Uh, you know, uh, Chad from Newfound Glory is down there, and uh, Chris Carabas down there. I mean, it just seems like there's a great community down there for yeah. For I mean, we're support. all in the and you guys are all, we dads. all live, We all live in Franklin, and it's it's uh, me. I li- me and Chris Caraba and Chad and Haley and uh, Trevor Keith. Um, a whole bunch of us. We have, we have a good little crew, kind of out there in the suburbs. Uh, a couple of the first things forever guys, um, and that's like our everyday kind of like going to the movies, kind of getting together for board games crew. Oh, and Ryan Key from Yellow Card. Um, that's like our sort of normal crew. And then in Nashville, which we're, we live about 20 minutes outside of, uh, like Arun from Saves the Day lives there. Jack from, from our band lives there. Um, you know, a whole bunch, obviously. A lot of, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people, you know, a lot more people from bands. So it's a, it's a good, uh, it's a good crew. And I, I mean, anytime I've gone down there, actually, the, when I was uh, hanging out the last time down there, I did see a rune from Saves the Day, and it was just you know he was kind of rattling off the same thing you just did of like, oh, this person's coming here, and it's just it was it was great. And I think you know you, I mean, so many of you guys are dads too, so you know being able to kind of support each other that way is great. Yeah, it is fun. It's it, it's definitely a trip. To get like a, me, me and uh, Caraba got like we went trick or treating with our kids t- together last Halloween. We all we took kids trick or treating together. I love that. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to mention about the record for anybody to know or sort of think about? Or um, I just think that I love the sort of the, the way you came from it um, and what you took out of it. And I think what you mentioned earlier, but anything else from the record? Yeah, you know, it's funny that like. For, for me, the record was sort of like it, I didn't really realize it until late, until way late in the writing process. Like the record was all, was pretty much written, and I sort of realized that the record represented like the five stages of grief. Um, and there are different songs on the record that you could like attribute to each stage, and it was crazy to me because I was thinking like I didn't do that on purpose. Like I was living them while I was writing it, you know. But you were working it out yourself through those songs. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny that I didn't even notice it really until I was done. Like, oh my God, I wrote this when I was in denial. And I wrote this when I was angry. I wrote this when I was depressed. I wrote this when, when like, I came to terms with it. That's great. Um, and then for you, what, I mean, I, this is always like a, not a cheesy thing, but sort of like, what's next? Like, you've got this record, you've got, this, is, is there anything that you, that you want to do that you haven't done? Um, you guys have this um, place where you can go anywhere and people show up. So what was that sort I of think next at, thing? At this point, we've so far like surpassed any goals we may have set. You know, the goals were to be able to make a living being in a band, you know, and the goals were to make a get a record deal and to go into a studio and make a record. Those were the, that's as far as we ever got, you know? So at this point, the goal for the last, 10, 15 years has just been, you know, we, we want to last a long time. That's always been the goal. We want to be, we don't, we want to be social distortion. We want to be bad religion. That's always been the goal. I love it. That's the one thing I tell a band if I'm like super nervous around them or something, I just say, please keep making music, you know, as I, my voice cracks. Because <laughs> that's all I want. I just want, like, don't stop. Like, I don't care if you're 80. You need to go out on tour and play that song I like. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, they'll really, like, bands want to do that, you know? Bands don't want to stop making music. It all comes down to viability. So as long as, like, the kids are, keep supporting the bands that they love, then the bands will be able to keep doing it. But, you know, again, viability comes into play. Kids, keep going to see Bayside, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we're very lucky. We're very lucky for this to, to still uh, 
they'll be working out. You know, we just kind of, we want to, that's really, you know, to answer your question, only goal we have is to be able to do it forever. Perfect. Dude, Anthony, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Did you have fun? Was it was it sort of different than the usual? Yes. Yes, I had a lot of fun. It was a blast. It's fun. It's fun to get, sort of get into the 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 history and stuff with with like with a uh, with somebody else who was there. Thank you, Anthony, for being on the podcast. Their new album, Vacancy, out now on Hopeless. Check it out. This episode was sponsored by the upcoming You Blew It album, Avendrot, out November 11th on Triple Crown Records, produced by Mr. Evan Weiss. Doesn't sound like anything else You Blew It have done, and that's a good thing. Once again, Avendrot, November 11th, Triple Crown Records. You blew it. Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com